0: Good morning, on this day of peace when all of our anxieties are put to rest and we can be excited about what's coming and turn our anxieties into hearts full of peace and excitement, would you join me first for a moment of prayer? Lord, we invite you in this continued season of Advent to stir our spirits in joy, dispersing the gloomy clouds of night. Driving out the darkness that we may rejoice in you in your peace Peace in the one who has liberated us God of miracles Ranging from granting children to the barren to sending your Messiah to be born in a stable and placed in a manger To granting the avenue for your calling your faithful back home to you inspired by the love of your son remind us in this time of your coming of all that you have yet to do and all that we have to look forward to in our own times of darkness. We await the coming of your dayspring, the dawning of something amazing which you have set in motion for good. You always have plans to prosper us rather than harm us. We remember and are moved by how often they challenge us as you are the God who reveals yourself to us in unexpected ways. Instead of having loud, brilliant trumpets in the halls of royal people and nobles announcing the coming of the Messiah, you gave a child to Elizabeth and Zechariah. That child grew up to be a prophet to prepare the way of the Lord, wearing camel skin and living in the desert. Instead of a palace adorned with gold among kings, Jesus came incarnate to the ordinary Mary and Joseph on a night of silence in a stable in Bethlehem among animals with shepherds from nearby fields as your witnesses. In the glory of Jesus' birth, we see how in the most unlikely, unexpected, seemingly unfitting circumstances, Jesus begins the most wondrous work of love the world (coughs) has ever known. Be with us as we anticipate the dawning of this new day, the day of your coming. In the remembrance of our Savior's birth, who humbled himself beyond all measure to fulfill your promise to the prophets, move us to see that you are doing work that is far greater. You can do much, much more than anything we can ask or imagine. And you love us enough to call us to be a part of it. Let us dwell in the words of Isaiah 43, where you said, Look at the new thing I am going to do. It is already happening. Don't you see it? We anticipate your coming eagerly, with open hearts, hands ready to serve, and hearts bursting with love to give. Come, that you may continually use us to bring about your kingdom on earth. We look forward to those glad and golden hours coming swiftly on the wing. Allow us rest beside that weary road to hear the angels sing. Amen.
1: will be wonderful next week. I am certain that the evening worship service at 6 will be amazing as we share together the music of this season and together be drawn in to the power of this story that we anticipate, that we recite, that we repeat over and over again, always finding New meaning or renewed commitment to its impact and its power in our lives. That's what we are doing today, remembering a familiar story to many of you. Hearing words that have been sung for millennia. Words that stand the test of time, that have borne up God's people in times past, and they will bear us up too. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 67 through 80. This is a song by an older adult, a priest named Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of the one whom we would call John the Baptist. Hear his song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child, John, grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today to get into the meat of what it is we read today we need to flip back in our bibles right to the end of our old testament and there here a powerful phrase a prophecy at the end of the last prophet in the old testament canon malachi and there in the last chapter of the last prophet in the old testament canon verses five and six written four centuries or a few more years before the birth of Jesus. He says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and I will strike the land with the curse. And just like that, the Old Testament comes to a close. It's confusing, confusing. It's cryptic, it's disturbing, it's not really the way you want to end a book unless you're planning to write another one. If we know any of the Old Testament prophets, I would dare to believe that Elijah is probably high on the list of the ones you know. Because Elijah's ministry was relentless. And we have many, many stories in the Old Testament talking about his ministry with Israel and particularly his interactions with the leadership of Israel. He called people to turn away from their sin, to turn back to the one true God. He confronted the wayward rulers, and he never sugarcoated his words. There wasn't a prophet like Elijah before or since. And in this passage that's written a long time after Elijah had died, Malachi lifts the hope that someone like Elijah, indeed Elijah, would come back to call the people to the path of love and devotion to the one true God. And so there were many in Jesus' day who read a scripture like this that implied Elijah would come back from the dead and they're left wondering and they're left waiting. And this song of Zechariah's is in a sense an announcement that that wait is over. Because after Malachi had written these words, there is in scripture no new word. There is no revelation from God for those 400 years that we can turn to. None that we can remember. 400 years, that's a long stretch of time. That's longer than the United States has been a country. It's a long time for God to be quiet. It's a long time for God to be silent. You may be like I am and be rather uncomfortable with silence. Not all of us are. But when a room gets too quiet, or a conversation grows still, I start to feel within, and even sometimes without, in my hands, and certainly in my lips, this compulsion to have to fill the silence with some noise. I'm trying to discipline myself more and more by the old Quaker proverb, speak only if you can improve on the silence. However, Silence can be awfully unnerving, can't it? Silence, when we pray, have you ever been in a group or even in church, particularly Baptist church, when we say we're going to keep 30 seconds, one minute of silence, it feels like an eternity. Have you ever prayed over and over again for a struggle that you have in your life a worry, and anxiety, a pain, a concern. You call out to God and as best you can, you you can't tell that God is even speaking. I've listened to many who wonder if God really cares when they're confronted with the silence. You know, I think many of us have experienced that silence. It's not always comfortable. Now you have to imagine that sense of, of silence in your midst the spiritual silence extending not for a day or a week or a year but for generations generations and generations who hadn't received that fresh word that they desperately needed the people did have themselves anchored in the law of moses they had the words of the prophets to fire them up and to call them to attention but what did all of that point to what was the law In the prophet's all about, what did it mean? There were only a few who were willing to dedicate their entire lives, if necessary, to hear that word from God. And even as God is silent from this human perspective, it doesn't mean that God has stopped working on behalf of humankind. Sometimes in the silence, in the stillness, in the unseen ways, that's where God is most powerfully at work. I was a little sad as I walked by the rose garden on the way in to realize the roses had received their annual haircut. There are not going to be any more roses. They're cut to a nice, even level, and there they are, ready to hibernate for the winter. But there is work that is happening. Underneath the soil, the roots are extending and finding new sources of nourishment. Underneath, in the hard winter months, they are being strengthened so that when the time is right, they will bloom with new color and freshness and power. In the letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent God's Son born of a woman, born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as children in the fullness of time. And sometimes that fullness only comes at the end of a long and protracted silence. Today, we read a story about how when everything was ready, when the fullness of time had come together, God speaks again through an angel, through a messenger. What was that carol we sang last week? God is not dead, nor doth God sleep. The time is now. And the messenger comes to Zechariah, and Zechariah's song that we read today is a response to the message. The announcement is this. Zechariah and his wife are going to have a baby, a baby that we find to be John. And that baby is to be the very one that Malachi anticipates, that Malachi promises would come a powerful and influential prophet who would be like Elijah. And that would be amazing enough. But the catch, the miracle that Mackenzie offered to us in worship is that Zechariah is older. He's really old. He's advanced in years. There are a couple of times in the Scriptures where God goes to work in those places and in those people who, in the eyes of the world, are viewed as fading or dormant or barren. Sometimes this happens when people are past their childbearing years. Abraham and Sarah, probably the most famous example. Who can forget how the letter to Hebrews summarizes Abraham's situation? I'm sure Abraham did not write these words. Abraham was as good as dead, it says. And yet from this man came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as countless as the grains of sand on the seashore. So we should be surprised that Zechariah balks and hesitates at the promise that's given to him. And in response, the Lord takes away Zechariah's power to speak while John grows quietly in those unseen places. I don't think Zechariah was being punished for his hesitancy. I don't think he's being punished in balking at the power of that promise. Maybe God knew that it was in the silence that Zechariah needed to prepare for Christmas. How would he fill that time if he wasn't speaking? He would devote himself to prayer. He would study the scriptures to try and understand what was happening, to understand what it was the angel had said to him, the role that his son would play might be John would be the one that Malachi had predicted but but is that all would John be just another prophet another prophet who'd be mostly ignored like all the rest no the more Zechariah was silent the more he thought about the very last thing the angel promised him and he will make ready a people prepared for the Lord for the Lord John's words and John's work would orient an entire people to what God was doing. Not to his own life, not to his own charisma, not to his own ideas or thoughts, but to the Lord. A massive social and religious reorientation to what God is doing. That's the awareness that then unlocks Zechariah's voice. And he proclaims in song not a lullaby for this little baby of his, but instead a song of faith about what God is doing and how his son and he and his family would be able to play a part in God's great work. In fact, it's not until verse 76 that he even mentions John. In this event that we would call Christmas. No. His little baby John would grow up to be a herald, to use the Carol's language, to prepare people for that coming king. And so that song walks us through several powerful metaphors and ideas that help us understand what God is doing when God arrives in the Christ child. There's a purchase from our slavery, there's deliverance from danger, there's the forgiveness of sin, there's the dawning of a new day. It's all about salvation through and through. Verses 69, 71, 77, over and over again, God is saving the people. But it's that image in verses 78 and 79 that I want us to focus on today because it is the stanza of the verse that is our Advent carol. O come, thou spring, come and cheer our spirits by thine Advent here. Dayspring. Dayspring. Because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet on the path of peace. The King James Version helps us understand that translation of the ancient Latin hymn. It reads this way, Through the tender mercy of God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in the darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. spring is such a great word. It's so much more evocative and powerful and interesting than sunrise. But that's what it means. spring is the sunrise. But there's never been in my life something like an ordinary sunrise. I thought, as I was preparing this week, about years and years ago, and I was still in seminary and completing a summer course, sort of an intensive course in clinical chaplaincy at Duke Hospital. And so I would take all of my learning and really poorly apply it to the lived situations of those who are in crisis in the hospital. Nobody's in the hospital because they're having a great day. It's just variations of sickness and brokenness and hurt and difficulty, of weariness. Every once in a while as part of that training, I would be on call. And so I would be the chaplain who would stay overnight, carry a pager, the pager. Hospitals still use pagers. It's pretty amazing technology, I guess. And every time there was a crisis or emergency, a code, a patient death, they would call the chaplain to come and tend to whatever needs the patient or the family may have in that circumstance. And the staff, never forget how those who take care of our hurting bodies suffer greatly. And they have to shut down any experience they had in one room to be fully present to the next. There in the overnight at a hospital as large as Duke, there may be five, six, seven patient deaths. And I'd spent a long night tending to the on-call spiritual needs of the hospital. And I remember how wrung out I felt spiritually and otherwise, the sadness that would stay with you as you move from situation to situation, room to room, family to family, whose lives changed unalterably, in an instant. And at the end of the night, one of the last jobs of the on call chaplain was to visit the hospital, uh, the, the hospital chapel. And there in the chapel uh, was a book of prayer requests. And families, anybody could go in and they could just sort of write the concerns of their heart and ask for prayer. And it was the chaplain's job to go and pray for those needs. And I remember on one vivid on-call experience, going finally into the chapel and opening the book and seeing the handwriting of children, seeing the handwriting of spouses, of people I had tended to just that night. And knowing the grief and pain that was part of that, it was more than I could bear. I'm not a weeper, but I cried big, ugly tears as I prayed, knowing full well what each and every one of those situations represented. And there, moving through the darkness and the difficulty and the brokenness, having both poured myself out and and taking myself on, I was just completely spent. I'll never forget, after morning report, going out of our windowless meeting room and being able finally to go home at the sunrise. And to feel the warmth of the summer sun's rays. And to be able to walk through Duke Gardens on the way back to my car. And to see the beauty of the new day. It didn't undo everything that had just happened, but it filled me with hope and with healing. There's no such thing as an ordinary sunrise. How much more when the day springs upon us with life and with vitality. You have felt the power of the day spring because that power is what lies behind the promise of the psalm. Weeping may last for the night, but joy. Joy comes in the morning. You should know that Malachi, in that same chapter, chapter 4, just a few verses before that prophetic cliffhanger that I started this sermon with, Malachi also says this. And I'll read it in King James just to spare you the suspense. Unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Sound familiar? Zechariah brings all of that prophetic vision into focus through the lens of a single person. The good news is that in this person we are given a hope that is consistent and healing and powerful as every sunrise. There is hope in him. And in the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated that habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to death and to evil, and to the way things are. 1 Peter 1.3 says, In God's great mercy, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is what opens a living hope that people like you, people like me, can be reformed into entirely different humans but it doesn't stop with humans the apostles also taught us that what happened in jesus in the resurrection is a foretaste of what god has planned for all of creation when paul wrote to the romans he said it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from the slavery to corruption into freedom when god's children are glorified what hope. There's a big difference between optimism and hope. When I was in the seventh grade, the Seroptimist Club had a public speaking contest and I'll never forget the topic, the theme about which we were supposed to speak was optimism, colon, a way of life. I did not win. There's a big difference between optimism and hope. Optimism is choosing to see any and all of our circumstances and how they could work out for the best. This is classically, it's the, the glass half full. And I've told you before, pessimists should not be judged. Pessimists are just optimists with experience. But there's a difference between optimism and hope. Certainly biblical hope. Because biblical hope is not based first on our circumstances. Biblical hope is based in a person. It is found in a person. In the personality and in the character and in the work of God. In the person and the work of Jesus who revealed God's character to us. So when I say hope is in a person, I mean this. Hope is in God. What do we mean even when we say God, especially when we have a hard time detecting God in our life or in the world at any given time? There are so many pages that have been written about this, who is God, how to describe God. And I, you know, reading more and speaking more doesn't necessarily make the answer better. One of my mentors taught me that sometimes the more you speak, the less you have to say. Robert Jensen, theologian, captured it beautifully, I think, through the lens of our scriptural witness. He says, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised is- raising Israel out of Egypt. John the Apostle, the evangelist, said this, no one has ever seen God, but it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him Known. hope is in that person. Hope is in that one to whom Zechariah sings this song of faith, to whom his son John, the baptizing prophet, points and orients the people too. So what are we to do about this? We can take our hint from that verse. Come thou, day spring." I don't want to bore you with too much word study, but it's awfully fascinating. The word dayspring that we would contemporarily describe as sunrise is also the Greek word that's used to describe the point on the compass we call east. Why? Because that's where the sun rises. And it's the same in Latin that the word uh, for east is, is uh, oriens. And that the Latin of the hymn. It says, come thou... Oriens, from which we get the word orient, which means east, right? But we've also, in English, converted it to a verb, to orient. Just like all of us, when the nights get really long and you start to worry that you've lost your way, you no longer see the path ahead of you or behind you, you can't see your companions around you you can't make out with clarity what is happening in your life or in the world and you yearn for the sun to rise you wait the day spring we orient east culturally socially we've done that forever Our orientation in these days is what's being called to us. For some of us, it may be simply doubling down on the direction we've already pointed our lives toward this one in whom our hope is found. For some of us, we can sense that call to reorient and reorganize our lives and point ourselves in a whole new direction with new commitments in new promises, with renewed life and renewed hope. Whatever it is we need to do in this season of Advent, the call is to look to the one in whom our hope is found. And in orienting to him, trust that his rising inaugurates a new day In God's great mercy. God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We could sing that our hope comes from that day spring. Life and light to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Amen.